0: Hi,
1: everyone. This is DJ and Allison, and welcome to Neon Nonsense.
0: Hey, everybody, thank you for joining us here on another episode of Neon Nonsense. Today, we're here with Robert Hawes and I met him through the Facebook page, Neon and Plasma Beginners, another plug for that Facebook group. If you're not on there and you're trying to start Neon, I highly recommend it for all things equipment related, technical questions, and just kind of fun pictures and uh, interesting ephemera about Neon. But through that and through asking a lot of questions, Robert was always the one that was there to answer in the most thorough way possible. And we're super happy to have you. Hi, Robert.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Welcome. Me here. How are you?
2: <laughs> oh, I'm I'm okay considering.
0: <laughs> yeah, moving is hard. Yeah. yeah.
2: And and the thing is, you know, neon people radio people antique car folks book people um artists of any sort such as doing pottery you know and photographers and mechanics I mean they're all hoarders and I'm I'm all of those things and my wife is a few of those things as well so (laughs) you know and and we've lived in this house for you know 12 years or so. And I've lived up here for almost 30 years. So there's just, a, wow. you know, I've already filled one storage unit with things that'll have to be brought down later. And I still have to do this room and the stuff in the backyard.
0: I, I, you know, it doesn't really matter because there's so many other heavy things in a neon shop. But uh, when I was a metalsmith, I, I, there was like a joke in school where it was like, you know, you settled down when you bought a big anvil. Right.
2: <laughs> and until you learned that you could put that anvil on a furniture dolly to move it.
3: <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. Think smarter, not harder.
2: <laughs> one, one, one other thing when you cut that half inch thick piece of plate steel to make your welding table, you know, cut it round so that you can roll <laughs> it to the next place. Don't make That's a smart. square table. Make a round table and just tip the thing up on end and roll it away.
0: That's really smart. Amazing. Uh,
2: it's late. It's laziness, trust me. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, smart. Smart. Well, hi, Robert. I'm hi. excited to finally
1: meet you face-to-face. We've just digitally spoken for some yeah, time. Yeah, I,
2: I, I may have talked to you on the phone once. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, maybe. Discussing Dino's. You know gear that he had in in uh yeah, yeah. chicago area maybe yeah.
1: But, uh, yeah did you get to meet dino
2: not yet but okay. I, but he's he's hanging on to some stuff for me and i'll be you know down there this winter and i'll make a point to stop in and, and uh great
1: yeah he's great i'm i'm really grateful for him too
0: yeah he always has this the nicest comments
1: yeah he's yes. just terrific he's yeah. seriously
0: Well, Robert, we are super stoked to have you on. Uh, Honestly,
1: both DJ and I just kind of want to hear your story. And could you tell us everything you know about electrodes is pretty much where we're at today. (laughs) We're not really exaggerating. We're just trying to be like less weird about
3: it is all.
2: (laughs) Oh, no worries. I, 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 I actually wanted to talk a little bit about that during my uh, Neon Speaks talk, but there just wasn't enough time to get to it. I had barely gotten started about the torches and whatever. And then boom, my time was up. And I was like, Oh, Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I had a a little pile of, you know, ancient historical electrodes to talk about sitting over here. But that's an interesting, that's an interesting area all by itself.
0: Yeah. But I also want to talk to you about restorations because you, you do mm. many of them, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wannabe in the restoration world. Cool. But I think then, electrodes in general they're like this intersection between like folk art and uh, science and engineering and electrical okay. stuff, and it's the ones that you specifically the ones that you've shown. I've just kind of like blown my mind. That you could, someone just was like, "Well, I need these. I'm going to make them."
2: Right. Well, I I like to say that the you know an electrode's the spot where the science jumps out of the wire and turns into an art form, and that's mm-hmm. uh, a m- maybe stretching a point a little bit, but maybe not by much. Mm. And um, I, I guess going back, uh, you know, when this all started, um, Claude's genius, as it were was that in his patent, he wrote it to specify a, a surface area for a given amount of current, because he had determined in his lab that anything, any electrode shell smaller than that would get eroded away rather quickly, and uh-huh. you know, by the bombardment and of the electrons while the tube was running. So he, you know, determined, you know, an optimum size and said, you know, this is the minimum that it should be. And he patented that. And, and from a business standpoint, that was a pretty genius thing to do. Um, kind of an evil thing to do if you were one of his competitors. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it you know, allowed him to to litigate and maintain control of the industry for so long. But the other thing it did that was really neat is it gave rise to a lot of other, you know, attempts to circumvent those patents you know necessity being the mother of invention and kind of in the same way that spark plugs were the quack medicine of the automotive industry 100 years ago (laughs) electrodes (laughs) electrodes really were the quack medicine of uh, neon
0: do you know like what um diameter that patent it was for
2: uh i uh i have it I've written about it in my blog and I'm, the number escapes me, but I, I wanna say it's like nine decimeters per amp, which if you do a bunch of number crunching, you can determine what that is for the typical 30 milliamp transformer that, that we would use. Mm. Um, I actually wrote that up in a, in a blog because somebody had given me some really old uncoated copper electrodes. And I started wondering if maybe they were an early attempt at non in, at a non-infringing, you know, an electrode that wouldn't infringe on that patent. Yeah. And in the process of measuring the one that I dissected and, and you know, with a micrometer and doing a bunch of calculations on it, it occurred to me well, in that process that you know, the easiest way to to circumvent that patent, and I'm sure somebody had to have tried it. I don't know if it was tested in court or not, but you know, if he says you need an electrode shell that big, you know, for a given current, and if you make one that big or bigger, you're infringing. Well, you just sell that same size electrode, but say that it's for a higher current so that the calculation puts you under that threshold. Now, if you actually ran it at that higher current, it'd burn it up. But then you tell your customer, wink, wink, nudge, <laughs> nudge. Yes, this is a quote-unquote hundred milliamp electrode, but I suggest you run it at thirty. <laughs> <You
3: know?
2: laughs> and and now you've technically sold a hundred milliamp device on paper, but you you basically told your customer you you really ought to derate that to a third and you know then it'll last longer and and you know it just occurred to me that was a really simple way around that but I have no no record or any examples or any way to back up the theory that somebody might have tried that
0: well other than like human nature
2: yeah yeah I mean, <laughs> you know it was a, I'm I'm sure if I thought of it, surely somebody had thought of it, you know, a hundred years ago.
0: That's reminding me of a conversation I had with Steve at uh, West Coast Custom Neon. Uh, I was talking to him about dimmers and just asking him to explain it a little bit more to me why, um, you know, dimmers were such kind of a question mark in the neon community, like in like the, there are a few, but then like some people have told me they don't work or they burn out the transformer really fast. So you have to wire it in or buy one that has one already wired in. I'm like the why do these exist? Yeah. And um, Steve said that when electric transformers started coming out and I think still to this day there is no like standard for the radio frequencies. No,
3: there there's isn't.
0: no and so they're just all wherever and so no dimmer is going to be able to figure out all of that or and like like, same thing for other animation situations so i was like yeah
2: oh i was going to say and and, you know a traditional magnetic transformer that was pretty easy because all you had to do is provide a a variable voltage uh, with the waveform into it and you would you know through the transformers and inductance and, and the winding ratio, you'd get a variable on the output and that's it. But with those electronics, yeah, it's, they're really an RF generator or a small Tesla coil, depending how you want to look at it. Right. Um, uh, the line frequency hmm. and voltage doesn't necessarily translate to a linear change on the output.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I was at, I was at an antique store just a couple of weeks ago and there was a neon clock and it was literally blue and then suddenly pink. And I was my my mind was blown. I was like, excuse me, everything I know about neon is being questioned right now. And I'm in just a friggin antique store. What's going on? And so I started to oh, go ahead. yeah.
2: And they probably didn't know.
1: <laughs> no, they, I mean, they. I definitely did not ask because the antique store definitely did not know. And then just in conversation with another Neon friend, they were telling me about how they were playing around with them and the different radio frequencies. And I was like, what? Because like, okay, I know that I'm newer to Neon, but I just couldn't believe that it took four years for me to learn that we could basically just like excite it at a different radio frequency, which would make the neon gas turn the tube pink versus actually like exciting the mercury. And I just like my mind has been blown and I'm so excited to learn more about this.
2: And, <laughs> and um, yeah. Don't don't feel bad because as far as the industry goes, you know, it's taken close to a hundred years for that to be figured out. Um I do vaguely recall a paper on discussing, you know, the spectrum of Mercury when excited under different conditions.
3: You know, this cool.
2: paper. That paper's probably 80 years old now. Um, uh, so some physicist was aware of this, but a lot of things like that, they take a long time to get translated
3: mm-hmm. to where
2: you or I would see them anywhere.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you, um, and feel free to guard your secrets if you have them, but... <laughs> I, I feel like the first time that I ever kind of like started realizing, um, that we had similar interests in th- all, not just neon, but the ephemera of neon and oh. the, just the, like the advertisement of an advertisement company. <laughs> um, and those types of things or designs and, and tools that are very specific. Um, do you have, a spots on the internet that you find that you can kind of cull through to find things like that or um like that a paper that you mentioned that was like 80 years old like where did you right. find that
2: um i i do i i will hit uh and 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 also let me preface all this no no secrets i'm i'm pretty free with the <laughs> information uh i think you'll know that at this point um I started off in an era when nobody would tell you anything and it was Mm -hmm. a really big deal that somebody was willing to tell me something to at least start me on my way of figuring out the rest on my own and so I've kind of you know pay it forward if you will I'm happy to to help anybody with what little I know Uh, and I enjoy passing it on when I find it um we're so
1: grateful by the way we both oh. dj and i are eternally grateful for that part of you oh, yes you're,
2: you're and so welcome. is my. i enjoy my it pump. you know but, <laughs> yeah, uh, our
1: lives literally our lives are grateful for you
2: <laughs> well i i oh you're i know what you're referring to
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> electrocuting ourselves to death both of That's us what we were
3: referring
2: to yeah yeah <laughs> not doing <laughs> that not doing yeah don't take that <laughs> off the to-do list exactly um, yeah um so uh for a lot of books and things abe ABEBooks.com is an excellent source for rare books the only catch is if you do a keyword search you're gonna get you know a gazillion hits for things and it's kind of useless in that way
3: mm-hmm. but
2: if you know If you're looking, if you've determined what it is you're looking for and you know the specific book or the specific author, then it's a great way to find a copy of that available somewhere because you can, you know, if, if I run across reference to something and I know who wrote it and roughly what year range it was written you know I can use that that website and I can find somebody around the world somewhere has a copy of it that they want to sell me
3: yeah
2: and, and then you know i push the appropriate buttons and it shows up in <laughs> my doorstep and you know adds you know another you know now it's like eight thousand and one things in here instead of eight thousand. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's that's one source. Um, you know, of course, eBay is always a good source to look for things, and it's just a question of of knowing what keywords you want to search by. And um, I'll be honest with you, I I probably have about thirty five preset searches mm-hmm. that are always active and then you know each day I scroll through and I go oh there there's a new one there and I'll go look and see if it's something I'm concerned with or not and usually it isn't but every now and again the right combination pops up and it's like ooh that's cool and and then the other way I end up with a lot of this stuff is is just word of mouth i mean people know
3: mm-hmm.
2: that i'm interested in this stuff and you know, for the most part, the average person isn't. And, you know, when they run across it, they'll either tell me or they stub their toe on it in their shop and they start (laughs) gussing a bit and they go in their, in their stream of profanity, they think of me because that's just a normal thing, I guess. And, uh, you know, they end up, you know, sending me a message and say, get, get this out of here. So I end up with some things that way as well.
0: That's awesome. There is a copy of the first edition of the American Streamline book in my local library.
2: Amazing.
0: And I am not one person, I'm not going to steal from the library.
2: No, don't steal from the library. I am
0: not. I'm putting that out there to the universe, but I want to so bad. I'll I'll tell
2: you what I'll do. I, I, I would like you to stay out of jail. I would like the Just library kidding. to have their book so that somebody <laughs> can can read it and I actually have two copies of that oh. so i will i will make it so that it'll be one less item that I have to pack up out of the shop and move and and all I have to do is throw it in a in an envelope and dump it at the post office
0: okay well I'm gonna trade you something for it
2: yeah no worries
0: once you move
2: and that's a a a very nebulous thing at the moment yeah (laughs) there's not an address that we're going to yet i see yeah so you you
0: guys are just gonna like pack everything up and then like figure it out i like it
2: yeah well i i've done that kind of thing before and i'll be honest it was easier you know, thirty years ago than it is this time.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: But uh, we have a nice travel trailer to live in with us and the three dogs. Yay. And we've we've lived in a, you know, we've done the the RV travel trailer thing before. We we took a long trip in the lower forty-eight for three months, so we know what that entails and, mm-hmm. yeah. and how to make it work. And you know, the the choice of the Minneapolis area you know came about kind of suddenly and uh, as did the setup for the move and and really what it was we'd been talking about moving for years but couldn't decide where and not being able to decide where just meant that no action was getting taken at all and we were sitting here in, in our little bitty house and, mm-hmm. and you know a little bitty little bitty house that we turned one bedroom into this neon studio and the other bedroom into a pottery studio and we cut the living room in half with a curtain and put our bedroom in one half of it and <laughs> you know in this little bitty place and
0: that's, that's awesome.
1: devotion to all your crafts right there
2: that's you know, true uh, no
0: one's allowed to complain that they don't have enough space yes. now
3: I, I have
2: worked i have actually had all this equipment in a 7 by 14 pull-behind shop trailer before and, wow. and this this artwork neon artwork on the wall behind me was made in the confines of that trailer and and so I I like to think I'm somewhat of an authority about working out of a broom closet because <laughs> I can pretty much do that yes. and it's a matter of you know packaging your equipment in you know your your pump station and everything in such a manner that it fits and and leaves you enough room to work around it.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think I credit probably the nerdiest thing I'll say on this podcast, but I credit like (laughs) a lot of, a lot of time like obsessing about the backgrounds in anime movies and like Japanese animation, everything, (laughs) the architecture and everything. I mean, obviously it's also like fantasy most of the time, but everything is just very well placed and thought about, and I don't know. It it inspires me to like be less of a chaos ball of stuff everywhere. Like trying to like, yes, I have a lot of stuff. I'm not willing to part with all of it yet. How do I fit it? It's a it's like a puzzle. You got to try and like fit it all in there and not make it look like a episode of Hoarders quite quite yet.
2: <laughs> well, um, I-
0: no.
1: Yes, we have many years of collecting ahead of us, DJ.
2: Yeah, Correct. i i have never ever never have i played the game tetris at <laughs> least at least not in a video game or anything i play it in real <laughs> life every day yes. all the time um i i definitely you know i can load the dishwasher like nobody's business and i can, <laughs> can pack a, a shop or storage unit i mean it's you know my daughter came in here and was like, you know, this room itself is going to be a big project to move. Yeah. Yeah, it will. But uh you're talking about the Japanese animation. I'm, I'm a, you know, fan of, of Studio Ghibli movies. Yes.
3: And
2: one of the things I like about them is, you know, even though they're fantasy and cartoon, you know, the background stuff is very real. It's very realistic. I mean, you know, there are things that you would see in your own house. And and it's being done the way it really is for the most part, and and I kind of enjoy that that meeting yes, of the, yeah. the two different worlds there.
0: Miyazaki's really yeah. good too at like in in like not that real props exist. This is a tangent, and not that real props exist in animation, but like he's really good at doing what I think a lot of newer uh, directors and animation people aren't super great at is like if something's set in 1950s it's not just things that were built just in 1950 and bef- and then after. It's like, there are objects from the 40s. There are objects from the teens. There are objects people are still using their car from the 1930s. Right. There's a mix of different ages and, and layers of patina, if you will, um, which is why they're beautiful and amazing. One of the many reasons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
3: Mm-hmm. Yep,
0: which is why it's just... It's just so frustrating when you, I mean, neon's a great part of that patina. Like, as a film buff and a neon person, seeing a well placed neon in film is very exciting. And then seeing fake neon go, happening more and more and more in neon is getting very frustrating. Right. Because <laughs> I thought for sure that would be the last, like, they have huge budgets. They're not going to, but I've seen like not- in the last trailer i saw for an edgar wright movie it was all fake neon in england in the 60s and i just like get this trash out of my face edgar wright you hear me
2: (laughs) yeah well the 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 mighty have definitely fallen i mean the the studios used to maintain a glass shop and and they would make Mm -hmm. their own they would make their own neon i've got photos of this old glass shop and they not only made their own neon for various movie productions, but they had uh, some scientific glass blowers, or at least people with that background, who could reproduce, you know, like a vintage barometer glass or, or an early, you know, early pump, like used in Edison's lab or something.
0: I didn't and, know that. And
2: this, and this was important, you know, and not even the scientific stuff, but they could reproduce old glassware that's you oh, know cool. 300 years old and and it was important because you know a lot of these objects are are too precious at this point to risk on a movie set where things yeah. accidentally can get broken mm-hmm. and, and then other times you know on a movie you're intentionally gonna break something because it's part of the scene of the film and you don't right. want to breaking you know a real antique and so they maintained a, a a small shop of, of people to do that work just like they maintained you know a garage of, of antique cars and, and other such things and and I'm not sure that they do any of that anymore I, I get yeah, the feeling yeah. that it's all either farmed out or at worst maybe CGI'd you know mm-hmm. it's all fake <laughs> you yeah.
0: Know? Yeah. I spoke to a neon vendor recently that said they did a neon sign for a movie, and then the the, the film the, the people came and picked it up, and then they scanned it. Oh. And then they put it in the movie, and then it exploded or something, or got destroyed that way. And then they just act like threw it away or did whatever with it. Probably just sit in a warehouse. <laughs> it was it was the new Ryan Reynolds movie, I think.
1: Okay. Oh, that video um, game one. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm. Yeah. So it was It was interesting to be in Boston on a movie gig for the first time two weeks ago, they were, yeah, they were like vintage cop cars just coming. It's like oh, the little tiny, like cute little blue um, light on top.
3: right? Yeah. Uh, little, the spinny like light.
0: Magne- like magnetic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. Man, the cars. And they did look like they were just dudes who, like, had a gra- they had a garage and they got contracted to come mm-hmm. bring these cars around. Um, for sure, but that was you know it's not Hollywood, it's Boston, Massachusetts, so it's very right. small. We,
2: we had a we had a few movie productions up here years ago, and I got to work it with some of them. And what um, movies. Oh, uh one of them was uh well the, the production name was Everybody Loves Whales, but it was released as Big Miracle, it was about the whales that were caught in the ice up near Barrow. And then they shot that up here. It had uh, Ted Danson and Drew Barrymore in it. Okay. And then the other one that was done up here was uh, on frozen ground. I think it was the name of it with Nicolas Cage. <gasps> that was the oh. one about, that was the one about Butcher Baker. Um, if you've ever if you Google that term, it, there's a book by that title. The guy was a serial killer. Who had a bakery just up the road from my house? As a matter of fact, <laughs> what?
3: Aladdin
2: um, you know,
1: Sweeney Todd.
2: Uh, no, no, he wasn't baking <laughs> them in the in the in the pastries, but but yeah, in that second movie, um, they did exactly that. They put out a, a call looking for people with cars of that that would have been around in that era, and so uh, even though that movie was set here in Anchorage in the you know the 70s basically you know you would have had cars from the 60s or 50s or earlier and so I, I got on that list to be called out to you know bring my car out at various times. um
0: Just to park it or was Nicolas Cage in one of your cars? No
2: no I in fact on this particular production I ended up not uh, bringing the car because they they were carving out like blocks of time, you know, and it was always at night. They they love to film at night because they can totally control the lighting. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not at the bigger, you know, if they want to make it look like daylight, they'll just throw enough arc lighting on it to make it look like daylight. But um you know, I, I had a job. And so you know they were calling me up and going, we need you to bring a 65 Volvo over here you know, and I was like, oh yeah, I can do that. What time? And they'd say, well, sometime between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. And I'd say, well, you're going to have to narrow that down a little bit, or I can just bring it and you can park it and leave it sitting there. But otherwise, you know, if I have to be there with it, I need a little more narrow time frame. And uh, they weren't able to do that on that production. Um,
0: Can you talk to us a little bit more about your restoration work, like how how did you get into it? um I'm really interested in the Pegasus enamelled sign that you you did. That I that's to work
2: on yeah. That's
0: like is correct me if I'm wrong. That's like the unicorn of porcelain signs, right? Like
2: yeah. Except back then, I don't think anybody knew it was the unicorn of porcelain signs. That that was oh. you know that was like 1990 or 91 or so. Um, I, I've been you know been a, a collector and restorer of, of antiques and things ever since I was a little kid. I, I mean a very little kid even. Um there's you know things in this room that I've had since you know I was four or five years old that uh have, have just you know that that's some wording. Uh anyway, <laughs> um I I used to go to uh, uh, surplus stores pretty regularly. Uh, my, my uncle was a history teacher and uh, his best friend owned an army Navy store back when they had really cool stuff. And I would go in there and pick around in all the bends and find things. And it wasn't just uniforms or stuff. It was, you know, parts of airplanes and, you know, pieces of, Tanks, and one time I saw an actual torpedo in the back room. You know, a real one, like yes. a real torpedo. And and uh, and if I found something that I didn't know what it was, I would would bring it into the back room. And you know, they were always the old guys were sitting back there smoking their cigars, drinking shots of whiskey, and and telling bullshit war stories. <laughs> and I'd ask them about something, and they'd tell me what it was. And then they'd usually tell me some bullshit war story to go along with it. So I, sure, I had sure. a, uh, you know, between that and and working with my dad on on little electronic projects and and fixing the car or, or an antique engine or whatever around the house, you know, I had a a very unusual hands-on education in in these areas, and I have an appreciation for this old stuff. You know, be it. Uh, you know, vintage cars or radios or neon, and I—I uh, I think anything between about 1850 and 1950 is of interest to me for the most part. And uh, the Pegasus. So what happened there? I uh, was working with a guy that that helped me get into doing neon, and there was a gas station in a town, oh maybe 50 or 60 miles away, and they had. This Pegasus on a rotating mount, and it was, you know, like near the airport uh, at an FBO where, you know, the planes would get fueled and all. And they wanted it redone. Um, so, you know, new transformers, new glass, wire it back together, repaint the inner frame with Emron paint, which is nasty stuff, but it's virtually indestructible. Um, little thing about Emron paint it's one of the only paints that you can paint the inside of an engine block with it, because by painting the inside of the engine block you fill in all the little pores in the iron casting so the oil that gets slung onto those surfaces flows back to the pan faster it's it's an old race engine thing that people did and Emron will hold up and Chrysler used to paint all their all their uh, early early type Hemi engines in the 50s with Emron paint. So this was good stuff to paint the inside of that sign with to make sure that it would last for many, many more years.
0: And that's, is that different than porcelain enamel? Yes. Like, it is, yeah,
2: okay. it is. Yeah, I mean, the faces were still a porcelainized enamel, but you still have them attached to that inner steel angle iron structure. Okay. And you don't you don't want that to rust away. And so right. anything you can do to protect it. Um, I think one of the worst things people do with signs, and there's one here in town in Anchorage that I'm afraid is basically destroyed or going to be. And there's nothing I can do about that. But they'll, I've tried, uh, but they'll take them down. <laughs> and then they set them down on their side or some way different orientation than how they're mounted. And if you think about it, when you build a sign cabinet, you know it's gonna get wet. You know there's gonna be water intrusion. So you design them and you construct them to allow water to drain through it and drain out the bottom and empty. You know, well if you lay the sign down, you defeated that and now it's gonna collect water and hold moisture and and rust the, the thing. And um that happens to a lot of these things when they get taken down, they just get put in a yard. You know, it's not practical to support a vertical sign in a horizontal or in a vertical fashion in a yard because you no longer have the foundation or whatever it was attached to side of the building or whatever. So you lay them down because you can't do anything else. But a lot of places don't take that effort to cover them, and yeah. so then. Problems result, and if they sit there long enough, they emit. So we we cleaned up the inside of this thing and and painted it with the run and uh, dressed up the outer face and you know bent units for it and, and whatnot. And it had a bunch of uh, fifteen thousand volt Jefferson transformers in it.
3: Wow. And
2: those things, you know, a they weigh a ton, but b they they just work. They just go and go and go. The the owner wanted new ones, of course, which is fine. But several of the old ones were still good. And I kept a couple of them for many years afterward. Um, Jefferson went through a lot of years where they did not put any serial numbers and, and they did not put any date codes on their stuff. So you never knew when it was made. And I think they just figured their stuff would last forever and there would never be a warranty claim on it.
3: <laughs> and, when,
2: and when I look at, you know, I've got one in the display case from 1929. I was based on its address and some other characteristics on the label. I was able to positively identify the, the year that that one was made. And it still works so
1: amazing you know
2: maybe maybe that's the case maybe their stuff just doesn't quit but that that sign disappeared you know from my life anyway I moved away and and kind of forgot about it and then you know was down that way again and kind of wondered where it went and never found it never heard about it had lost touch with the guy I'd worked with and you know, just figured, well, it's, it's gone. And then it turns out it's now at a uh, little roadside museum in Conroe, Texas. Um, it's on I-45, north of Houston. They've, they put some ugly plexiglass over the sign and I understand it, it's ugly. I can't stand it, but I understand uh-huh. why it's along the interstate. And they've done that to protect it from flying debris and, you know, tire blowouts from trucks and that kind of thing. And they've got a nice little historical park and it's it's around there. And they built a gazebo that kind of looks a little like the building that it was on top of before. And I, I guess they had a relighting ceremony years ago. And I, I guess it had spent some time in somebody's garage after the station it was at closed down you know so but it was nice to know it didn't get didn't get destroyed and it didn't get just hidden away somewhere so it's it's still around and people can see that
0: yeah because i think i don't think a lot of people realize historically especially during world war ii when there was like a lot of need for scrap metal there's a picture i can't remember if it's you, you posted it or if it was neon speaks maybe it was in the neon book the newest neon book that came out There's a heart-wrenching picture of just piles of neon signs, just in a scrapyard. People are just like, "We'll buy neon signs," and it's just, and so anything that's left is like, it's more special than I think people realize. The older signs that are still around and that are still like look like they used to and weren't changed in some way.
2: Right, and you know, a lot of there there were the scrap drives. you know, another source of, of attrition for them, of course, was you know, the business goes away, then the sign's irrelevant, you know, at that point, at least from a commercial standpoint. And then uh new business comes in, they don't want it there, they you know, get rid of it. Um uh, I I know even some recent examples where that's happened, and, and there's a wonderful you know, model shop I used to go to as a kid. And a few years ago, it closed and moved to a new location and they didn't take the sign with them, which I think was criminal. And the new business that's in there, they repurposed the sign, they made it into, I mean, if you look at it, you know, that they've, you know, gone right over the old structure and skin and everything with with their stuff and and they run kind of a neat art business from what I've seen online and and I hope they're successful but I'm I'm still a little irritated about the sign that was on the building because it'd been there since like I don't know 1949 or so big big neon sign for G&G shop with a a big locomotive on top with animated neon wheels they took that down years ago but the Rest of the sign was still there. And I wonder, I sometimes wonder if that locomotive part is on top of the roof of that building. Because I've seen that happen where people pull the sign down or make a change to it and they'll just leave it on the roof of the building because it's way less trouble than trying to remove it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 I've also heard people say that they found signs behind motels that don't exist anymore. And that's so every time I drive by one, if I have time, you always look, I'll yeah. drive behind it and be a creeper and be like, there's something back here. I don't yeah. Know. Okay. There's a sign company in a little tiny town in North Carolina that I can't remember the name of right now, but it is a very obviously a sign company that went out of business before Neon started to decline. And oh, wow. I know there's shit in there. Yeah. I know there's shit in there, and I don't know who to talk to about it. <laughs>
2: That, that's so. the frustrating part is not knowing who to, to get a hold of to, to get yeah. permission to go in there. You know, if you can find an owner or the new tenant, a lot of times, you know, they'll just be like, oh, they'll look at you as if you're the person who's going to clean all that crap out of their building for mm-hmm. them and not charge them to do it. So, you yeah. know, it's like, hey. Yeah, knock yourself out. (laughs) Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Actually, yesterday I stumbled across this estate sale and this couple clearly did a lot of travel. And I found this huge box of all of these old postcards from like the 60s and 70s of them visiting all these old Best Westerns.
2: And oh, there yeah. were
1: so many old signs on the postcards. Yeah. And my poor husband was like, Do you really need all these postcards? It's you a know? research brand. Yes, I was like, Yes, it's research, <laughs> research yes. brand. DJ says it's research. Okay. <laughs> it I, have is. I sec
2: I second that.
1: Yeah. So I, I tried to be a little less insane about it and got like a, a handful, but also like a set of matchbooks for anyway. It was just like a People lovely find. Yeah. Oh, no, okay.
3: you,
2: you, yeah. you you know the, the the correct answer is yes you need them and the second part of a correct answer is you're you're only bringing home one a box. One box.
3: One box. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one box. I mean,
1: thankfully, that my box, printer is-
2: That box may turn out to be the size of a, of a Conax, but, yeah. you know, it's one yeah, box.
1: No, it <laughs> I mean, thankfully, he's completely on board, because if he wasn't, we wouldn't be here today. And yeah. yeah, and I'm like, no, 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 I have plenty of space in my new studio. It's great. Yeah.
0: <laughs> my new uh, eBay alert is Matchbooks of Neon's shops, specifically. Ooh and i found a few really fun ones i have one that just says it's a sexy lady and a dog she's like got a dog on a leash and it says terry says you need a sign and oh, i don't I know who t-
3: sure, sure, i don't, don't know
0: who that. terry is i don't know if terry's the dog or if terry's the lady yeah. but i love it
1: and i agree Listen with to terry. sexy lady dog they both yeah, want her. you to have a sign it was <laughs> it was like all right cool where do i sign the up thing. <laughs> well okay. see what
2: you did there <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay China. i i'm kind of switching gears a little bit but i i have some broad questions for you robert about electrodes okay is that okay if we switch over to that a little bit yes crew okay cool so i have to admit that i have a limited knowledge of what's actually happening in the hardware of the electrode. And my kind of like broad question to begin is around the glass seal specifically, because my understanding is that glass does not seal to metal. Is that correct?
2: It's it's not entirely it's correct.
1: Not totally. Okay. So I'm, my first question is like the mechanics behind how we manage to weld them together and like isn't there a certain coating on the electrode wire between the exit of the electrode wire to the actual inside bits
2: yeah it's 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 actually so that the the part that's in the glass itself is uh dumet d-u-m-e-t or dume i think might be the more correct pronunciation although i'm not certain of that and it's a metal that's a uh iron nickel alloy with a copper coating. Copper, yeah, okay. And I believe it's, and it's borated copper, um, which consists of getting it hot and running it through some borax to to put that coating there. And that allows the glass to adhere to it and seal. And uh, its characteristic and why it's used is that it has a very similar thermal expansion ratio as the glass that we're using, and so as the temperature changes, it kind of tracks the the expansion of the glass. If you you know, it's like taking two different glasses mm-hmm. with different coefficients of expansion; they won't stay together because mm-hmm. the one changes more than the other, and they pop apart. And this is the same idea, but with metal. If if you were sealing to uh, to pyrex, you know, borosilicate, you would use. Uh, you know, like a, a tungsten or a Kovar type alloy to do that. And so that that's what's happening. And then, so that's the little orange section of wire in a neon electrode that's within the press stem so of the pretty. glass it
3: is and then it's
2: <laughs> it's welded to your leads on the outside and to right, the harder right. metal. Some of them just have a Dumais lead all the way through and all the way out. Huh, um, huh. Those were cheaper. Uh, the consequence is if you flex those leads a little bit, they'll break right off really easily. They're kind of brittle, and so is that the like the one settings... that I
0: the, the ones that I sent you that were really tiny that said Jumei yes. on them.
2: Yes, that's exactly okay. what that was, and and you know, and I've got some 1940 volt arc electrodes here that I got a box of. I know I know the exact production date because it's stamped on the box, which is handy. That doesn't always happen. Yeah. Um, but they're a Dumais lead, and and mm-hmm. uh, with like a nickel coating or something. And I I've snapped the leads off of several of those unintentionally, just mm-hmm. twisting mm-hmm. them and doing stuff with them. So, you know, the advent of those more flexible leads was really helpful. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's basically what's going on with that uh, stem seal.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: it used to be people made their mm-hmm. own. Um, yeah. Eccles Echol, book has a little section in it on on making your own electrodes um if you're Shout out percy kind
0: of, yeah percy
2: but awesome is that what he's thought. doing right
0: now he's he's posting a bunch of pictures and videos of him cutting electrodes with a dremel or something
3: yeah oh, and then like putting okay. it
0: inside of his big plasma
1: vessels that it's super so, fascinating
2: so what what he's trying to do is yeah he's, he's trying to get uh he doesn't want the electrode sticking out of the art piece that he's making. So he wants it up inside of the thing. And so he's, you know, using the neon electrode to obtain that glass-to-metal seal because it's already a pre-made panch and it works.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, then he want I think he's wanting to use a solder glass to join it rather than actually a traditional, you know, hot welding of the glasses itself. He'll use a, a lower temperature melting point piece of glass and actually weld it on there and that can work um i i've been discussing with him how he's going to process that because uh Mm -hmm. if you know once you put that electrode up inside a bigger envelope it's harder to heat it with an induction heater because Mm -hmm. you've got you know your coil is a lot farther away from the piece of metal that you're trying to heat up Mm -hmm. Uh, depending what kind of work coil he has that may or may not be another technical problem that he gets to work on but i haven't i'm actually supposed to call him and i i need to do that so thank (laughs) you for reminding me
0: you're welcome uh, we are
2: here yeah but anyway getting back to the electrode that's that's what that section in within the panch is about and and then the the old uh, book that Eccles wrote um he discusses making those and because there was a time where people thought that it was worth their effort to make their own electrodes in the shop and that's uh pretty unusual i have a few of those um roxy gave me a couple i think they were might have been made by her grandfather i'm not sure uh, certain that. they're pretty what? neat and then uh i was at uh, you know at matt thompson's shop and got a an electrode that was part of a barber pole sign, you know, the cylindrical spiral.
0: Uh-huh. I saw that, yeah. And whoever
2: made it didn't want that electrode to be straight and stick out anywhere. So they made an electrode that had a bent shell and pressed in pinch sealed into a bent <laughs> piece of guy It looks like a little banana. Amazing. Aww. And uh, I would say that's probably of all the different electrodes I've seen, that's probably the most one of a kind one because, you know, they were probably made only for that application and, and only for however many of them, the person made, which couldn't have been too many. You know, it's and when you that think was, about,
0: That electrode uh, was made out of the same type of glass that neon, the neon glass would be made out of.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was. And, and uh the, you know, if you think about how different ways you could bend glass to fit within a given area and other things, to me, I I look at that electrode and I go, you know, there's other ways to solve that problem that they were trying to solve. And and I probably would have done something different or or tried to rather than trying to make a, a curved electrode because, you know, a straight electrode you know, sure, you throw the shell in there, you you know, heat the glass up and make your pinch seal and all. But with a curved one, now you have to insert that curved piece of metal exactly the right way so that it doesn't touch the outer glass envelope.
3: Because
2: mm-hmm. you you don't want to create a localized hot spot in the glass either during processing or operation, because it'll lead to it cracking. In fact, in in Early electrodes, some of them had uh, either glass beads around the shell or a larger disc pressed around them, or sometimes a glass envelope within the outer envelope. And its purpose was strictly a mechanical function, it held the shell in place. There's even some patents relating to doing this, and, and the patent illustrations will show a shell over time drooping and contacting the glass and creating a bit of localized heating and le- later leading to it breaking. Huh. And so they were, you know, devising different ways to support that shell, you know, to prevent that from happening. Uh, huh. Now, Nowadays we have, uh, you know, fairly rigid support wires, you know, welded to the back of the shell and that stuff isn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And the the shell metal is very robust. It's a a pretty hard uh, nickel coated alloy. And, uh, um, you know, then of course it has the emission coating inside. And by the way, as a side note, if you take a 15 millimeter electrode apart and cut off the welded leads on the end and then take a drill and run a hole through it to make a key ring out of it. Um, you're gonna find that that shell's really hard to drill through, <laughs> but but you'll also find it's not impossible because I do in fact have a key ring that's an electrode shell, um, because you know geek. Anyway, that's
0: amazing. <laughs> you know, geek. <laughs> right. So, what can you explain? Because I've gotten, I've had, I bought new electrodes. I've gotten electrodes from other shops that I bought out, mm-hmm. and. There are some that have mica inside and there are some oh, that yeah. do not. Can you mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit more about when mica started being introduced into electrodes and why? I,
2: I, I think that was uh, about the mid to late 1930s. And part of it was to provide um, some electrical insulation against the uh, outer envelope and, and also some thermal insulation, I believe, was partly what they were looking at. I I think there was still some issue with those shells coming into contact. Um, another thing they were always trying to fight with, you know, especially before better coatings and better processing techniques was what I refer to as outside ignition. And you'll still see that happen sometimes. An electrode will glow on the outside of the shell instead of right through the, the inside. And I mm-hmm. think the I think some of the intent was they were trying to control some of that. Um, The exact year that that started, I'm not certain of, because like you, I've seen some really old ones that have it, and I've seen some really old ones that didn't, and I've seen some slightly newer ones that didn't, and slightly newer ones that did. Yeah, same. Um, You know, I I don't know. I got a box here I can look at. I I can't remember half the things that, you know, but I, I wrote things down. A um, bunch of these these hides um, from that era they don't have that, and mm-hmm. they're of the similar vintage. The unique thing about the that hide electrode, uh, I, say I ended up with a box full, and when I get a box, that's really neat because I can do some experimenting with them without you know without destroying the only one in a collection. Mm-hmm. And so I've actually processed a few of those, and then there was a couple I actually cut apart, and I was astounded at the thickness of the coating that they put inside that shell. Um, hmm. It was a heavy copper shell, and the coating was probably just as thick as the metal.
0: Wow! I,
2: I'd never seen anything like it.
0: That's crazy. What about um? What about ceramic ceramic coat like uh collars and electrodes? Uh, those. I was, always, I was told that those kind of act like impurity sponges after the fact. I,
2: I haven't heard that. Um, my understanding was that it was not so much a gettering material, which is what an impurity sponge would be, but it was a, uh, an effort to confine the ionization to the inner wall of the, of the electrode. And I've, se- I've got some electrodes that have a metal cap on the end for the same purpose it's a metal cap with a little hole in it and it was the same idea they were just trying to divert where that ionization took place and and with good reason um you know the whole part of the whole process of getting around Claude's patents you know later led to coated electrodes um EGL in one of their that's a PR mentions that that's how they got started. Was that they had fallen upon um, learning of some work by uh, uh, Venelt in Germany about 1904. He was working on metallic oxide cathodes for X-ray tubes and things mm-hmm. like that. And uh, what they realized is that you know if you co- used a coating, you lower the work function. Of the electrode, which basically means you lower the amount of voltage drop that takes place in the transition from the metal to the ionized gas column, and because uh, what happens when you apply a high voltage to an electrode is is you free an electron off the end of that metal, and it collides with uh, an atom of, of gas, bumps it up to a higher energy state by knocking you know, electrons off of it, you know, when it falls back to its ground state, it emits a packet of light, you know, we see that nice glow, that's basically what happens. And and then there's more and more collisions in the tube, and eventually you get what they call a Townsend discharge, and, and, you know, it's kind of a a cascading of, of collisions through the tube, and the whole thing glows. Well, at the opposite end, Those electrons, you know, they're flying through that tube at the speed of light. And they slam into the other electrode at the opposite end during that half cycle of the power wave. When they do that, they create uh, an awful lot of localized heating right in that spot on the metal where they hit. It can be several thousands of degrees of, of temperature in that one little, you know, Minuscule microscopic subatomic area of metal and it vaporizes off some of that metal, and that's what leads to sputtering. You know, you're oh. actually blasting that metal with a particle beam, is basically what's happening. Well, if you have the coating in there, it, it does a couple things, it becomes a, a source of free electrons, and uh, a barium strontium oxide is a preferred material that they've used a lot. And uh, it provides this free source of electrons. It also protects the metal a little bit because you can knock a lot of particles at an atomic level into that layer before you get into the metal itself. And so using the ceramic color is an attempt to confine that discharge column to the inner side of the electrode where the coating is rather than having it hit the outside where there's no coating on it now that coating is actually applied as a carbonate it's like a barium strontium carbonate material and during processing when you heat the electrode up and it glows cherry red you know while you're bombarding it whether you use Mm -hmm. a bombarder or an induction heater, the result is the same while it's under vacuum. And they refer to that terminology as converting the shells. You know, I'm sure you've heard that before. Mm -hmm. What you're doing Mm -hmm. is you're converting that from a carbonate compound to an oxide. And so that barium strontium mix becomes an oxide coating and it makes that metallic oxide similar to the stuff that Venelt was working on you know, over 115 or so years ago.
0: Wow.
2: And and it lowers the voltage drop. You know, an, an, an uncoated electrode, I want to say a 15 millimeter uncoated electrode might suffer about a 200 to maybe 250 volt drop right at the interface between the metal and the ionized gas column but with a coating on it, that same electrode might only experience a 90 to 110 volt drop. So it increases the efficiency and, be, and with a lower voltage drop, the difference between the voltage at the electrode shell and the voltage of the gas column is closer together. Because instead of having a 200 volt cathode fall, I've now got a hundred, which means with a lower difference in the voltage those particles are not slamming into that metal with quite as much force you know they've mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. cut that kinetic energy in half at that interface point is basically uh-huh. what they're doing
0: are they cutting down on the um the conductivity of the electrode with the coating by doing that
2: no it actually increases it effectively yeah. because it's it makes it's a good emitter of electrons it takes okay. lower voltage applied to make it throw an electron off oh. and so it lowers the resistance at that point and uh, makes the oh. tube more efficient but more importantly it makes it last longer mm-hmm. because huh. the electrodes don't deteriorate uh, as a side note if you wanted a really good source of, of free electrons you could coat it with a beta emitter some some metal that emits beta radioact you know radioactive that emits beta particles like coat <laughs> that thing coat that electrode shell with thorium oxide for example radon now radon radon's a um radioactive but it, it has a very short half-life uh, okay. like I think it's only a couple days or so. Boo. Huh. The only reason radon's bad if you breathe it is if it happens to decay into a metal before you exhale it, then you've got that piece of metal in you that's radioactive. And in its decay chain, some of those steps in the process have half lives of like 20 years or something. So, you know, if you go in an old uranium mine and breathe the air, Some of that radon, you'll just exhale it out. It doesn't matter. But some of it will hit a decay point while you still have it, and then you're stuck with it. That's why. That's why people don't want radon in their houses. You know. Anyway. Or whatever. Yeah. But 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 you could coat an electrode shell with thorium oxide, and that would give off, you know, beta particles, which are electrons. And I would think that would make it even more efficient. And I'm unaware of any neon electrode that was ever manufactured that way. Um, I don't think anybody did it. If they did, I haven't run across the advertisement for it, and I have been looking. (laughs) Um, Thorium thorium is used in um, TIG welding electrodes for exactly the same reason. It makes it easier to strike that initial arc when you're doing TIG welding and they'll use like a half percent or something amount of thorium in the mix of, of the electrode metal that they're using. And there is one gas discharge lamp. Uh, it was a hot cathode lamp, more like a fluorescent, that had neon gas in it, and it had a thorium pellet in there with the heater element, and it was used it was made by a company in in England and it was used as an airway beacon light at some other airfields in in England. And, uh, I can't remember the wattage. I, I want to say it was, you know, a couple hundred watt fluorescent you know, glow type lamp, you know, hot cathode glow type lamp with neon in it, but it did actually have a thorium pellet in it. And, uh, when I found that information, I was like, you know, I felt a little bit validated about the theory of <laughs> uh, a thorium-coated electrode. It was like, oh, well, you know, it must it must actually be possible that that was a yeah. viable mm-hmm. option because they were making those lamps well into the 90s. It wasn't like it was a, a quack medicine solution from 100 years ago. It was something that they, they may still make those lamps. I don't know. But I think... When I found out about it, I, I, you know, did the old right click on the spec sheet and copied it.
0: <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, it's always fun to like, uh, like connect those dots from different parts of like experiences, and then finding something that validates your theory and on something. Like I am always trying to find as an as an enamelist, you used to do really tiny jewelry sized enameling. Um, which is the same as the way that the uh, porcelain signs have, were enameled, except instead of using a spray gun, I'm using a paintbrush. Right. Um, but we used to do this thing, like it was just kind of always something we were taught where you you put down a piece of paper, you sift on your enamel. If you can put the rest leftover back right into your that container, cool. But if you mix anything, don't put that back because now you've got like sprinkle glass different colors so you put it into a jar and it would be called the counter enamel jar and the way enamel works because of expansion and contraction you have to enamel both sides of a piece of metal or that metal will start to to bow and turn Mm -hmm. into a not flat piece anymore and so you would just use that counter enamel as a backing like you would use it as the back piece that no one was going to see it it was just to keep it flat and i was in St. Louis or somewhere, and someone had just a face of a sign, not the full sign, and it was porcelain. And I looked on the back of it, and it was all sprinkle glass. It was all counter enamel, extra glass that they must have just had around the studio. And I was so like, ve- like, validated <laughs> by
3: that.
2: That's that cool. it was super I, fun. I, I didn't yeah, you know, I realized they were coating both sides and I collect a lot of antique porcelain signs as you can see behind me, but I didn't realize that that they were doing that with the excess material to do that with. Most of mine are just a plain flat color across the back of them. But that's, yeah. You know, yeah that's pretty neat. Cool. I didn't know they did that.
1: Yeah. Okay I have an unrelated question to you said a keyword for me Robert which is sputtering and I I have a question re- relating to that I'll start with the question and then we can deliberate so if I have an entire brand that sputters after I process them is it my processing of the electrode or is it the brand ooh <laughs> <laughs> because I only ha- I have one brand that Basically sputters every single time I process them and none others. Sometimes the glass around the electrode can get kind of like maybe I've over process them, but not always. So anyway, could you tell me
3: more about sputtering? So are, are, and are, you using,
2: <laughs> are, are you using the same processing parameters for the ones that sputter as for the ones that don't? I mean, are you doing the process exactly the same?
1: Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I'm doing the, pretty much the same They're So they're all 10 mil. And I think the only variation would be uh, length of time. And actually I had some research to suggest that it, it's happened on both pumps. So I have a new pumping system, um, that I've been using and it's a much bigger bombarder. And so it, it's been processing my tubes in like 45 seconds flat. Like it's kind mm-hmm. of freaked me out the first few times. But my, and it's 26 KVA, but my, my old one was a 12, uh, it's a big one. My old one was a 12 KVA and it was still happening on them. And it took a lot longer to process the tubes
2: too. so. So, so what, what I'm, what I would wonder first off the bat is just to rule it out is, you know, say, say electrode brand a, you process it and when you do your final conversion heating you, you run i don't know I'll, I'll just say 500 milliamps through it and they for 30 seconds and and okay. they don't sputter and they're done for sake of argument okay but Electro brand b you do the exact same process run that same 500 milliamps through it for 30 seconds but they're sputtering my thought would be either the batch is bad or the processing parameter the 500 milliamps is too high for them one of the okay. two so it could be it, it, i don't want to say it's a bad batch and i don't yeah. want to say it's a bad brand yeah. because yeah. it could be that one manufacturer says 500 for 30 seconds is great uh-huh. and another and, and also don't forget the pressure whatever the pressure is has to be the same you want to minimize all your variables right you know it might be that 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 spec of pressure and current and time and temperature is okay for one brand but not for the other and maybe yeah. that other manufacturer says no don't use 500 use 400 or, or okay. you know it, it could be a problem like that. Um, it, one thing I like to do if if I'm trying to weed out, something or just demonstrate a real comparison you know you want to eliminate as many variables as you possibly can and one way to do that uh if possible is uh take you know you could take one electrode of one batch and one of the other batch and put them at uh, put them on the same unit when you do that you're going to be processing both of them at an identical pressure and an identical current flow for an identical amount of time. And if you do that and one of them comes up bad and one of them comes up good, you might start to think, well, either that processing is not good or that electrode is not good. But what you've accomplished, what you have answered is the question of the variability between them if you were to make two separate units and process them separately there's always that possibility that you did something in one of the processes versus the other that you didn't do you know and and it's hard to take notes on these things while you're doing them you know i i sometimes i sometimes will will process something and i'll have my phone and I'll take pictures while I'm doing it because there's no way I'm going to be able to write down the temperature and the pressure and everything as it's all changing in real time while I'm trying to run the process. So you know, if if it was feasible to to mix and match the group, which is usually something you don't want to be doing, actually, but yeah. in this case, it might be an answer. Um, in a similar way, I, I wanted to show the difference between leaded glass and the non-lead in a tube with you know mercury argon in it.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: I didn't want to make two separate tubes because there could be other variables between them. I wanted to have everything exactly the same except for the glass, so I sealed the two pieces of glass together and processed it as one unit and filled it so now I knew for certain the fill was the same the processing was the same everything about it was the same except for the two pieces of glass and oh look here's this color difference that I could quantify I could take pictures of it and nobody could say yeah but you know if if, you know yeah but maybe you did something different with that tube versus that one's like no it's the same tube mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? so, so if, if you can kind of use that type of method methodology
3: mm.
2: you know to rule out other other variables and keep as many constants as you can um, yeah. but my, yeah. my thought is that either either you know it's got to be one of two things either the processing isn't I don't want to say even bad processing because clearly the process works for the other electrodes it just may not be a compatible process for that electrode
3: yeah
2: or yeah. Or, or the electrode could be bad and and I guess the way to answer yeah. that is find out what processing specs the manufacturer recommends mm-hmm and then if you still have the problem while following their processing specs, then you know there's something wrong with that batch.
1: Yeah. So in particular, when I'm processing this brand, sometimes one of the electrodes will just be cherry red after a few seconds. And it's only, I, I haven't gone past 300 milliamps, but at, at the whole process. And so then the other one won't have been processed. So I'll have to up it a little bit to process the other one. And so the one that gets cherry red first kind of gets all like, yeah. I don't know. and you then know, the it runs, it. It, but like the actual electrodes just sputter repeated, like
2: yeah
1: when it's on.
2: And, and, and that, that type of problem happens occasionally, regardless of <sighs> whose electrodes you're using. Sometimes you'll have one end wants to come up to temperature faster than the other.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I think some of that is, uh, excuse me, pressure related. Mm. I, I, you know, you can have A given pressure at one end of the tube and and particularly on a long unit it could be different at the other end because you you've got a certain amount of time taking place to pull the stuff through there especially through the tubulation it really slows down the you know the speed of it and so you know maybe sometimes you know you'll have these problems and my solution usually is to, to back off rather than to overheat. I'll I'll start cycling the button, you know, with you know, with my foot, toggling the, the transformer on and off to let one of them, if not really cool, at least not overheat it and then pull a little more vacuum and hit it some more and try to get the other one to come up. This is also an area where an induction heater can be really helpful because yes. you can turn off the bombarder current and then go up to the one that won't get hot and mm-hmm. put that work coil up to it and push the button and, and you know light that one right up.
0: DJ, mm-hmm. do you use an induction coil? I want one. I actually have messaged Robert about his suggestions on they're not cheap. So yeah. I won't I want one and yeah, same. um I know there's like one company that makes the kind that are ideal for what we do and yeah. they're amazing and worth all of the money, but I am going to have to save a little bit to get it. Yeah, same. <laughs> same. Yeah. I,
1: I'd really like to, cause again, like this has been an issue that I've been having and um, at least for the, this particular amount of particular brand of lectures I've invested several bo- in several boxes of them. And it's been a real bummer to, be managing. So yeah, an induction would be great.
2: I I would first try finding out the the recommended specs from the manufacturer for Mm -hmm. processing Mm -hmm. it, and then adhere to those, you know, temperatures, pressures, current levels, and see if that problem goes away. Yeah. And if it doesn't, then, you know, you may just have to muddle through it with other methods but i would caution against over processing because that's yeah. when you get your sputtering you know you've yeah. you've overheated it you've cooked the coating you've blasted mm-hmm. the shell apart at low pressure so you you know you you just you know what would you say your bombarder was 26 kva yeah that's a big, a big one in.
3: she's a, a, big, a big yeah one.
2: not twenty six thousand volt but 26 kva wow okay that that's the the biggest one i personally have ever owned was a 15 which was a, a plenty good size i mean i could yeah. process a uh i think my my stupidest thing i ever did <laughs> i made a big wave in 10 millimeter neo ruby for a frown and i made it in one continuous piece because i was young and and not thinking and and i realized oh my gosh i've got you know, twenty-five or thirty feet of ten-millimeter glass here. <laughs> How the hell am I going to process this? And and so I put fifteen-millimeter electrodes on it because that's the biggest I had, and I hooked it up to my my bombarder, and I was able to process the thing. I got the glass up to temperature without overheating the electrodes, and then I got the electrodes up. The trick was I did it slowly. I I took my time, and uh, you know, ran it at a low current so I wouldn't cook the electrodes and and just got the, the glass hot. Then my challenge was how am I going to get it over to his house? <laughs> I ended <laughs> up uh, we had, he he came over with his uh, CJ five, and we ended up taping this thing to a two by four, you know, running the length of it. Which we then strapped between the windshield frame and the and the roll bar on his jeep. Oh my god,
0: Robert, you're gonna get me And we drove
2: and we drove across town to his house at like two in the morning because there was no traffic. And we got oh it god. in his house and then installed it on his wall. And I, I think it was there and lit up right up until he sold the house years ago. But That that was one of those things I did in my twenties, and you know, in when I first got into this, you know, actually I was probably nineteen, really, and uh, just because I didn't know any better. So now I tell people, you know, if you've got a really big project, make it in pieces. Don't try to make it all as one unit because you're just going to make headaches for yourself later. And yeah, they make for good stories, though. (laughs) Yeah,
1: especially when they survive.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just, amazed. I think the worst part was getting it out of the room after making it, getting it out of, out of the shop. <laughs> yeah. So well, thank you.
3: yeah,
0: I have two questions To I'm going to ask the random question this episode, everyone. So get ready.
3: Oh, stealer of things. It.
0: What? <laughs> if it's okay with you, Allison
1: fine just for the record yeah. everyone i have converted dj over to the nonsense side just
0: saying <laughs> i've always been there <laughs> that's where we found each um, other right that's where we found each other uh two questions because you added i added one what is your favorite miyazaki movie your, your studio ghibli movie
2: Ooh. oh <laughs> damn they're so good um
0: you have to pick one <laughs>
2: You know a desert I, island
0: with a flat screen television
2: gosh there's so many they're all so good I, we, I i i really enjoyed no face just because of the the artwork and that yeah but i being a being a flying person i I'd, I'd have to go with um um god what was the name of it my daughter loaned it to me. This is the other thing I'm horrible at remembering. Is it uh,
0: um, the the grave of the fireflies?
2: No, absolutely not. That one. That one it was made really me
0: sad. sad.
2: <laughs> Definitely <laughs> um, not that one. So no, the Ki- one. Ki- the one about the, the and and Kiki's is a great one too. Yeah, Kiki's delivery service. I like. I was gonna say that, but then I remembered this other movie that they did that was about the the. Guy who invented, he basically developed the Zero for the Japanese. Yes. And I can't remember its name, but it was good too. And, and yeah. but Kiki's is a great movie, Kiki's Delivery yeah. Service. Yeah.
0: Mine's How's Moving Castle. Oh, um, yeah.
2: We like that too. So, somebody needs to make a neon calcifer.
0: The Wind Rises.
2: Okay. Yeah. That's I think something. is what it's called. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Google. Yeah, that was definitely like I think a lot of people didn't see that one because it was like historically accurate and not super f- fantastical. It's kind of not on his brand, but um and the, okay. So my second question is, if you could have any superpower from the from the X Men universe, ooh, if you could have any mutant power, what would you have?
2: <laughs> oh hell. <laughs> <laughs> i i i'm so horrible because i'm trying to remember what those options are
0: <laughs> well they don't have to be like they don't have to be like exactly the x-men but that was just my example if you just what superpower would you have, if you could have any superpower?
2: what superpower would i have oh time travel
0: yes ah. good answer <laughs> an answer sorry my
3: phone
0: awesome time travel's good one i would want magneto powers because like that would be so convenient you could just go anywhere you just stand on a piece of metal and go anywhere it'd be just yeah. great if you'd like teleportation but you also could move cars around and just like do like make cool sculptures that's all sew, i want to do and sew yourself up when you get in a firefight yeah like metal's everywhere folks it's everywhere it's everywhere <laughs> Okay, what else? Do you have any more questions, Allison?
1: I do. I had I had one zany question for today, Robert, okay. because of your your uh, comments about flying, and it sounds like you have interest in air travel of sorts. So I wanted to know that if you had the choice, if, if an alien group came and visited our planet, would you let them beam you onto their ship?
2: Oh, hell yeah.
1: <laughs> and what would you be most oh, excited shit. about what would you want to see on the on a alien ship
2: well i I'd, I'd i'd want to see all of it you know <laughs> i'd want to see how it worked and and i'd want to go somewhere and and see what's out there and you know yeah the whole thing that would be cool it <laughs> would be cool yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah remember that that movie uh Flight of the Navigator, about oh, the little yeah. kid who got to go in the spaceship and, and drive it and whatnot. Yeah, <laughs> I'm all into that.
1: <laughs> it's been a long time, but I've seen it a long time ago,
2: yeah. It's terrific. Yeah, I, I you know, they, not not, not really into that whole probe stuff, but if they want to beam <laughs> me up otherwise, you know, I, I, I'm on, on board with that.
0: This is way more of a boring question but I just thought of it and it has to do back with electrodes. So in you know I've I felt like um I have a PowerPoint presentation that I show my students cuz I'm a nerd whenever they come it's cute and then there's like a little great um uh if anybody wants to like laugh for like 10 minutes they should google path a p a t h
2: yeah e. yes
0: Uh, and neon bending and there's two amazing videos yeah they're amazing and they're just like fancy dudes in sweaters bending neon and there's a guy and there's like cute little music and it's like (laughs) Chicago neon signs and it's just it's so amazing and I show it to my students but anyway I digress but I hate that the beginning of I hate that it goes Ramsey Travers and found the found the gas, figured it out. Then it like was basically a fancy lava lamp for a couple years. No one knew what to do with it, and then George Claude, French Nazi guy, d- made neon. Like I just I don't like that narrative as, a, as an American, I mean, except right. that I do I do like that like Americans were like stole it, made it into a pirate art form, <laughs> and then like. Did sure. whatever they wanted with it, but when I found out it was I think at the last neon speaks it was the folks who. Um, put the last neon book together.
2: Paul and video. Okay.
0: Yes, and they spoke about the more tube. Right. And can you tell me what kind of electrode situation was going on on the more that oh. more tube?
2: more more was amazing. I am Who was I'm, an American. Yeah, I'm. I'm a fan of Moore. I mean, I I give Claude his due. Make make no mistake. He he made yeah. important contributions and he developed some processes that we still use. And and I'm all about that. But sure. but more, um, did Moore was the first one really to take. Um, he wasn't the first one to to have a, a luminescent ionized gas lamp a discharge lamp Uh, the geisler tubes from the 1800s would have qualified for that Mm -hmm. but moore was the first to develop it into an actual commercial lighting system and um his tubes they had to be made on site they they were big they were you know typically between one and two inch diameter And they would go around the perimeter of a room to light it. I'm sure you've seen some photographs of some of the installations. And so
3: Hmm.
2: you couldn't build a more installation in your shop and then bring it to the customer. You actually had to bring your shop equipment to the customer and build it into their building. And he used to call his glass workers, he called them glass plumbers. I'm sure they made (laughs) some basic parts, (laughs) you know. They probably made some basic U uh, bends and and angles and whatnot in the shop, but then they had to put them together on site. You know, hanging up on the ceiling from the scaffolds while working, and so he developed the hand torches that we know about. I mean, the you know wow. stuff like our our typical hand torch. The patent on it dates back to about 1910. And this was done to make it easier for those guys to fit those tubes together up in the ceiling of these buildings.
3: Amazing. That's so so, cool.
2: You know, these installations would be anywhere between, uh, you know, 150 and up to maybe 200 feet to 250 long of of (sighs) tube. And they would circle back to one transformer box. And it had a big transformer in it. I I think somewhere around the neighborhood of 4,000 watts maybe is what (sighs) I... recall from some of his papers and uh, um the electrodes were massive they were a graphite typically um that was one of the materials that he specified in some of his stuff but the genius of how it worked because he was using uh, carbon dioxide which is not inert um co2 gives a great light It, it looks almost like daylight but because it's not an inert gas, it, it gets consumed very rapidly in the in the tube. Mm. And so it would chemically combine with the electrode material and, and maybe even the glass wall to some extent. And um, the way he worked around this, you know, if it was sealed and he ran it, as the gas got consumed, the pressure would drop. And this this happens in a neon unit too. It, it gets consumed by the sputtering traps it against the gas, the glass wall and it takes it out of the reaction, but uh, in the more lamp the way he resolved this problem he made a valve. That consisted of a, a porous graphite cone that gas could flow through but mercury could not flow through because the pores were too small. Huh. And so this sat in a glass envelope and was connected to a container of carbon dioxide, which could be obtained by a chemical reaction or actually a, a pressure tank if he wanted. The Sitting in this pool of mercury was an inverted glass cup with an iron core at the opposite end, and when it sat in there, it displaced the mercury, which forced the mercury level above that cone and sealed it, so the valve was closed. The outside of the valve had a solenoid coil, a wire wrapped around it, which was put in series with the transformer running the tube. He found when he filled these tubes, there's a point where you um, fill, you raise the fill pressure. And you reach a point of maximum conductivity, and the most current will flow through it. And then if you fill it a little bit more, that tapers off and it drops. So he would fill the tube beyond that maximum current flow point. Turn it on. As the gas got consumed, the pressure would drop, which would cause the thing to work backwards up toward that maximum current flow. When it reached that higher current flow, because the solenoid coil was in series with the transformer winding on the primary side, the magnetic field would increase as the current flow went up and it would lift that iron core, you know, glass cup up off of that cone, which would let the mercury level drop as it wasn't being displaced as much, which would then admit more gas. And as the gas flowed into the tube, <laughs> it would replenish the fill pressure back insane. up to that point where there wasn't enough current flow for the magnetic field to keep that core elevated, and it would drop back down and seal it off again. So in Whoa. operation, you know, a, a few times a minute, this thing would kind of jiggle back and forth throughout the operation of the tube, almost like it was breathing. And it, that's, that's how he resolved that problem. But the uh, getting back to your original question, the electrodes were were massive. They were a, a big graphite uh, item. I'm told somewhere in the neighborhood of two inch by eight inch, you know, wow. a lot of graphite in there, and uh, they were kind of a power hungry thing. But compared to incandescent lighting of that day, they were actually pretty efficient. Um, one of the selling points you know, in his documentation was that, uh, you know, that they were some percentage greater efficiency for a given light output, and it was a better quality light than the orangish glow of a incandescent lamp. uh, None
0: of those, none of those exist today?
2: None of them are known to exist. Uh, The Smithsonian Uh, has some parts, but there's no complete installation, and as a side note, one of my little pet projects maybe after i get moved and have a bigger space to do it i want to recreate this cool and, and i want i want to be able to recreate an installation for lighting my shop space <laughs> using that principle and i i won't i won't try to claim that it's the only one in existence in the world when i've got it working but you know it, it if i get not? it working it well could be I don't know I have no idea but but that's one of those little you know if of of my little dream projects that I want to do that's one of them so cool so, yeah and so yeah i i i've been a, a student of Moore's work for a long time and and have some of copies of some of his old papers and Even, oddly enough, I found a printing block. Um, He he was in business. He was selling these installations. It was a real product. And he had a company called More Electric. And I have a little advertiser's printing block from, you know, where they would have, you know, run through the the ad process of writing that. Was that an
0: eBay purchase?
2: uh, That one was. And and then I've got a, a set of paperwork from his business you know it's actually from the more electric Company's archive file and i can't remember where that came from but other than it came from more electric it's got their stamp on the back
0: (laughs) i think the other thing that's kind of a black hole of ebay is that i when i found out that there's like not just the ebay that we see in america there's ebay france there's ebay germany there's ebay all these other German like other ebays that you don't see on on a first search right and i've gotten into like that like looking up stuff google translate for hours
2: (laughs) right i've done that and and also i have friends in europe that i talk to and and some of them are neon people and they'll every now and again run across something and they're like you probably need this don't you and i'll look (laughs) and i'll go Yeah, I probably do. Yeah,
1: That's a good friend right there.
2: And and Mm -hmm. the the problem is, you know, getting some of the stuff here, like I had mentioned Abe Books is a real good source for publications. But one time I found a book I wanted through a European Amazon site, but it wouldn't let me order it. There was no way I could order it myself. And I forget what the problem was, but it wouldn't allow me to. And my wife did something. I don't remember how she did it, but Elizabeth got in contact with the actual owner or seller of this book and sorted out some kind of voodoo about it and it showed up (laughs) on the doorstep i don't know what she did but it worked out and and a lot of
0: times yeah it's exchange rate stuff yeah
2: yeah well it was it was some about it just wouldn't even let me buy it you know i'm like why not i got money I, i i've got a computer i can push the button sell it to me and it yeah but it wouldn't ship it here or something like that and and you know he had to change something to a, i think he had to take it off of amazon and actually sell it independently of the platform or or something weird i i don't know whatever it got worked out and, um, <laughs> i can't remember if that was that eccles book or if it was shell rudder's book but it was one of those two from from the uk
0: once i was um i had my work um showcased in a czechoslovakian or czech republic uh enameling book and i was super excited about it and then they contacted us and said that we could only buy it through like a czech system like a right uh, yeah like some sort of system that i didn't i don't know i'm it was like my millennial side of my brain was like nope not doing that and I remembered that I we had I had a friend in the Czech Republic from she was an exchange student in high school. There you go. <laughs> uh, we were friends on Facebook, and I was like, "Hey, so,
3: can you? Order how you doing? You?
0: How's it
1: going? Can you take this money and get me a book?" She okay. was really
0: cool, and she took it, and she bought me two copies and sent sent them to me in the mail. It was very nice. That's, Thanks, Barra.
2: Awesome. Yeah, that yeah. is awesome. So yeah, yeah, I mean, there's yeah. there's ways of working around those problems, and you know, a lot of times it's just talking to the, the person and you know,
0: mm-hmm. sort out. Absolutely.
2: Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for talking with us. Oh no
2: worries, it was fun.
0: Yeah, we uh, will have you back on for a different it, topic for sure.
2: Fair enough. Yeah, and hopefully it'll hopefully from an actual workspace that's bigger than than the broom closet
0: yeah well hopefully maybe one day in person yeah that'd be like
2: cool well that's that's the other thing with this move um you know it'll put us within a two-day drive of either coast it'll put us within a two-day drive of pretty much everybody we know in the united states uh, it's closer to our grandkids I mean there's a lot of reasons why that move makes sense and there's more there's actually appreciation for neon and other things down there that doesn't exist up here anymore and so there's just more opportunity to pursue this type of interest yeah I'm so
3: absolutely. excited
1: for you yeah and opportunities ahead of both you and your partner that's great
0: Yeah, and a little selfishly, uh, I know I can speak for Allison, too, in this. We are excited to be able to, like, not have to go to Alaska to say hi. Yeah. (laughs) I mean,
1: I've always wanted to visit Alaska. No offense, Alaska. Yeah, but, you know,
2: being... There's there's really um, awesome things here, and then there's some really not awesome things here. (laughs) You know, but that's true of anywhere. Um, You know, it's easy to fly here. Uh, you know well yeah, for you especially true. you're in seattle it's yeah our right. flight that's
1: alaska that's airlines
2: yep they'll <laughs> pop you right if you're and if you're a club 49 member you get two free bags so you know that's
3: noted. All,
2: yeah. noted i bring back glass that way i'll i'll fly somewhere and i'll because i it's too much money to ship it up here i hardly do anything because it's such a, a burden to get material up here to work Yeah, Um, I'll actually package it up and I'll use strapping tape and wind a big handle on the box, and then I just check it as my second bag,
3: nice,
2: and and get it up here. And I've done that several times,
0: and it's made it every time.
2: Yep, every time.
0: Wow, not a
2: not a single cracked stick.
0: Wow,
2: so much faith in the
0: airline system. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Well. Don't get me wrong. I I don't enjoy commercial flying at all. But when I have <laughs> to do it, I, you know, I like flying. I don't enjoy commercial flying. There's a difference there.
3: You mm-hmm.
2: know? But uh, when I have to do it, I try to hit up a supplier. You know, before going on a trip, I'll I'll call and look up a supplier in in or near town or whatever. You know, like my last trip to Minneapolis, I popped over to FMS and visited with Mike Sweet for a while. And bought some glass and checked it as luggage to bring it home. <laughs> That's what I do.
0: Shout out to FMS for having a buy online button.
2: Absolutely, a thousand big, percent.
0: Yes, I'm a Thank big you. fan of your website. Thank you for your service.
2: <laughs> and if you call Mike, if you actually, what I found anyway, maybe it's just an Alaska problem that you don't have. But on his website, if you try to buy it through there the shipping rates are astronomical but if you actually call him up and talk to him you can sort out a much better shipping rate at least in my case i i think maybe alaska messed up his automated you know ups or whatever service he was using i think did you just
0: divulge a secret life hack for fms (laughs) secret secrets
1: on this podcast everyone you
2: you talk to mike directly and he'll sort you out he's he's a great guy he'll help you
0: thanks mike yeah awesome well thanks again for schooling us on electrodes and all kinds of uh, i learned so much this past hour i can't even tell you yeah
2: well you're very welcome and i've enjoyed it and and thank you for having me
3: Yes, absolutely.
0: Were any of those cringy for you, Robert?
3: Was any of that, like... Oh, like, all of it. Okay, okay. (laughs)